Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Na'maduhu wa nasalli ala rasulihi al-kareem ma ba'd. We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings and the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing Shahab Ahmad. We are on page 78. Okay, The Balkans to Bengal complex is also a prolific theater of operations for the re-infrastructuring of society by the local and universal organizations of the Sufi tariqas with which the absolute majority of Muslims were in one way or another associated. Okay, so a couple of key points here. The latter point, the vast majority of Muslims were all uh, associated with Sufis. So the Sufis are presented as this, are viewed as this innovation and, and off the track of Islam. No, that was Islam for, for most of the Muslim world. And, and so their focus was on internal change and, and they were often the social activists and their way of connection was by way of these big networks, the tariqas. So for law, you'd have a madhab and then for your, your spiritual growth, your tazkiyah, your purification, you'd be part of a, a tariqa or you'd be connected loosely to a tariqa. So they'd be simultaneously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the orthodox tariqas would require you to be uh, in a particular madhab. But that was also the norm for the entirety of the Muslim world, mm. right? And some of that was related to imperial history. So where the Ottomans spread, those places became Hanafi, you know? And, and so the point is you already had a school of law. And so this, this, uh, this was also very common. But having these networks was then also restructuring society, right? Because think about it this way. Think of your sacred relationships. It's your relationship with your parents, your children, your spouse, as well as your sheikh. Okay? That becomes one of your sacred relationships. Yeah. Like with the tariqah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, continue. The physical institutions of the Sufi tariqahs, namely the Khanqa, Zawiya, Darga, Takka, and Markaz. Mm-hmm. Is this right? Yeah functioned as the physical sites for a range of truth-seeking and truth-experiencing activities such as dhikr, collective ritual remembrance of slash with God, sama', collective auditory communion with real truth, ziyarah, visitation of saint tombs to benefit from the cosmic economy of the Sufi's baraka or spiritual power, ya'tikaf, meditative retreat, and the ongoing teaching of these practices and of Sufi texts. Okay, so again, looking at it in reverse, you have these core Sufi texts, you have the teaching of practices, and then the practices are some of those mentioned. Dhikr is the most common one, right? You know, dhikr is something that we think of still today. Wird will be the specific uh, dhikr or adhkar that's assigned to you. And then these other things like ziyara. Here you're visiting the tombs of, of saints, or a better term might be the graves, but a lot of these graves have been turned into, turned into tombs. And sama is a special type of listening. Okay. And then itikaf is just like we have at the end of Ramadan. And the idea is you're secluding yourself from everything else. And usually you're secluding yourself to either allow more focus on Allah before you go back into the world, or to deal with spiritual illnesses, like you're too much into the world, so to take you out of it. Okay. And then uh, earlier, these different institutions. So, so the Khanqa. It's Zawiya. In Teke uh, are <clears throat> different terms for essentially the same thing. Khanka is more Desi, Zawiya is more Arab, Teke is more Turkish. And that's basically like the Sufi center. It would not be a madrasa. Like it would be like today we'd use the term third space. 
right? But basically, or it would not be a, uh, a masjid. It would have a musalla, right? Okay. But it would not be an actual masjid. And so that's where you go to be, to be taught or to be in the company of the sheikh or the other students and such. Darga is, is what we have all across the Indian subcontinent. And these are the tombs of, of Sufis that a lot of people go to visit. If you go to India, you'll have, uh, you'll have Hindus that will also visit the dargahs. Like Muslim dargahs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Marka is a general word means center. I don't know how it's being used here, but that's, uh, that's beyond my knowledge. But the idea is that it became this whole institution of its own. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, let's continue. Especially seminal in the expansion of the Sufi phenomenon in societies of Muslims were the works of Ibn Arabi and the development of his ideas by his philosophical commentators, such as his stepson Sadr al-Din Qunawi, yeah, and such as the first professor appointed to the first ever Ottoman imperial madrasa, Dawood al-Qaisari, yeah. who elaborated a system of thought strongly rooted in Sufism, but which adopted a systematic language of philosophy. Okay, so on the one hand, through Imam al-Ghazali, you have a merger of the way of the Sufis and the way of the Madhab. And then with others, you have a merger of the way of the Sufis and philosophy. Okay. Uh, so, you said that, like, for the general populace, people were associated with a Madhab and a Sufi Tariqa. So, yeah. um, Historically, where was Imam al-Ghazali compared to this phenomenon? Of... So Imam al-Ghazali is in the 1100s, uh -huh. and the phenomenon of everybody being part of Tariqa is probably about 500 years after, Okay, so 400 years after. So his, his teachings were like influential in that, in that phenomenon. Thereby producing what Su'ad al-Hakim has so rightly summed up as nothing less than the birth of a new language. As, as will be illustrated in the course of this book, the meaning of man's place in the cosmos came to be conceived of and expressed in the terms of the new language of the Sufi philosophical amalgam. Yeah. The historical self-consciousness of which is expressed in the fact that another of the philosophical expounders of Ibn Arabi, Abd al-Razzaq Kashani, yeah authored a famous dictionary of philosophical Sufi way of conceiving, seeing, and articulating the cosmos amounted effectively to a cosmological re-infrastructuring in the apperceptions of the Muslims of the Balkans to Bengal. <laughs> so yeah, and another way to think about why is this happening, because these are the, the big things that are going on in the world. So imagine today somebody comes up with something that combines the way the Sufis with psychotherapy and social work and such, because that's what's going on in today's world. Oh. A lot of these things are motivated not because someone just came up with a cool idea, but because that's what's in the air. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It is not merely the case that the fundamental orienting concepts of the philosophical Sufi amalgam were transposed by Muslims of the Balkans to Miguel complex into a cosmological trajectory. Rather, Muslims also transpose the fundamental orienting concept of the philosophical Sufi amalgam into an anthropological trajectory, which is to say that the human being was similarly conceived by these Muslims in these terms, most crucially by the re-infrastructuring re of the human being as microcosmos. Yeah, so, 
So a lot of you keep hearing the term cosmos, cosmos, cosmos. So part of the idea of the Sufis is that you're purifying yourself to get closer to reality. Okay. Yeah. That you have all these things within your heart that are that are obscuring or blurring your 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 view on reality. Okay. And part of the idea of the Sufis is to clear all those out. That's does key, that's purification. Right. But to develop a method for purification, you also have to develop an understanding of the human being. So through the philosophical lens, they basically look at the human being as like a world of its own, okay? within this whole world of its own. Other people use different methods. You know? Some of those methods sound today more like psychology. Um, I read an article once, or it was like a foreword to a book by a guy named Chittick. Yeah, very big um, scholar. Yeah, it was a really weird book. It was like... <laughs> <laughs> I probably shouldn't have read it back then, but um, it was talking about the cosmos and how the human is a microcosm of the of the mm-hmm. of the of the larger cosmos. Yeah. Um, so, in terms of like sentience, how does that 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 trend? How does that like work? How does that mm-hmm. analogy work? Well, I mean, the idea being that your goal is to be at one with the cosmos, which then means your goal is to be at one with nature. So the common mistake that people make or the common sign of ill health, ill, Ill spiritual health, is if you're just devouring and disregarding and destroying nature. Right? Okay. And so the goal is to be completely synthesized with, with everything. Okay. Right? And so that's one school of philosophy. Right? Or let's, let's imagine it a completely different way. Um, so imagine in your mind uh, a baby being born. Okay? By the way, what, what race was your baby? Persian. It was like light between white and brownish. Okay, interesting. So, so this baby. Because I just saw my cousin, my, my cousin's baby. Was okay, nice question. Yeah. So, so you have this little baby, and the calendar is moving pretty quickly. And so the baby is growing and growing, and the baby's crawling. And now the baby is, is beginning to hold on to things and standing. And now the baby is walking. And now the baby is beginning to run, and the baby's getting larger, and, and now the baby's beginning to go to school, and going from, you know, preschool, now to first grade, now to second grade, third, fourth, fifth grade, now, so now the baby's about 10, 11 years old, now the, the, the baby goes through middle school, junior high, high school, uh, graduates from high school, now, now this kid, this young person, is this a male or female? So then he, then he goes through college, and then uh, becomes a professional. Uh, what profession? Go ahead, say it. Say it. Say it. <laughs> okay, so works at a hospital, and, and then is getting older. Uh, then he gets married, and then they have kids. And now this person's getting even older. This is beyond middle age. This person becomes a senior citizen and is slowing down and is aging more and more. And now his kids are getting older and older. And then now they're having kids and he is getting older and weaker and weaker. And then he dies. Okay? So you just imagine this whole person's life. life. Okay? How do you know you are not the imagination in someone else's mind? As far as that person knew... That person had a whole lifetime. Okay. And so, dun, dun, dun. It's like that like the simulation kind of thing. I didn't read into it, but it was like the idea that 
it's all a simulation and then mm -hmm. we don't actually we don't actually have sentience. Yeah. And so all that's an illusion. That's another possibility. So in terms of the microcosm, um, is it supporting that simulation theory or is it not? I mean, these, these are all different theories. Okay. Yeah. And, and so the, the theory that everything is an illusion is something much more common today with, um, you know, with the rise of technology and such. Mm -hmm. right? uh, back then, it would have been just the view that this reality that you have in front of you is, is not real. You know? hmm. So these are all different theories of how the world in front of you operates. So think of the era of science as a way of determining how the world operates. In fact, like I have this book here. It's called The Road to Reality. But what is it? It's basically a whole book of equations. And so science is saying that the whole world operates by way of these patterns, you know, through matter, non-matter, and stuff like that. Um, and so that becomes its own worldview. So it's a different understanding of reality. And then you internalize it, and you don't realize it, and that determines what you believe can be done or can't be done. So you're not going to find too many people who are sane adults who will say, yeah, yeah, you can fly, you can teleport. In different eras, they'd say, yeah, why not? The question is, did they? Don, 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 don. So what are these? These are all different theories of reality. Okay, so... Okay. It is not merely the case that the fundamental orienting concepts of the philosophical Sufi amalgam were transposed by Muslims of the Balkans to Bengal complex into a cosmological... Oh, I do read this, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry. This is, of course, the famous anthropocosmic... Anthropocosmic. Anthropocosmic. Cons cosmoanthropic yeah. concept of the perfect or complete human, an insan and kamil, elaborated by Ibn Arabi and subsequently in Iran by Aziz and Nafasim. Nasafi. Nasafi. Nasafi? Yeah. And in Yemen by Abdul Karim al Jilim. Yep. While very, very few human beings are completely perfect, um, human are are understand. While very, very few human beings are the completely perfect human, all human beings are potentially perfectible or completable. Mm -hmm. And the consciousness orientation of living towards completion or perfection of the self was informed in the societies of the Balkans to Bengal complex by the further foundational idiom of the Sohrawan Wardian concept of illumination, Ishraq of the self. Okay. So the idea of the perfect human being, the point being that every one of us can achieve perfection. And the, we'll think about this a few ways. Uh, who in history was perfect? The prophet. So one way is to think of perfection being exactly like the prophet, peace be upon him. Right, meaning you won't be the prophet, but to be exactly like him. Another way is to be 100% perfect in your obedience of Allah and the prophet, peace be upon him. You know? And then what that then translates as is that you see reality for what it is. Meaning everything that's preventing you from getting closer to reality are things that are sources of flaws or imperfection. And those things are removed, bringing you to, to perfection. To just obedience. So it comes down to basically obedience. Pure obedience of Allah. 
film. Okay, does that involve like detachment from dunya, like physically or no? Um, it can include detachment from dunya, but um, the person could be, you know, your neighbor, your janitor, your physician, your cab driver, your teacher. I mean, they're still gonna be part of dunya. Okay, so like orient, making like orienting every action towards every like making the attention as ibadah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that is something every, uh, everyone has the capability of doing. And so Suhrawardi is part of this school called the Illumination of Philosophy, Ishraq. And so their idea is very similar, but look at everything as being, you are light and you have darknesses in your heart that you need to remove. So you said the first one was... Oh, I mean, these are all, I mean, basically you do a couple. Okay, just two, right? So I give you uh, imitating the Prophet, peace be upon him, mm -hmm. complete obedience, right? Uh, this, you know, releasing that light that's within you, removing all the darkness. This orientation is evident in the literary and artistic self-statements of Muslims who live in the Balkans to Bengal paradigm, which may readily be observed to be marked by a developing and sophisticated discourse of self-conceptualization and self-articulation of individuals and of collectives that located the self in the cosmos and the cosmos in the self precisely in the terms articulated by the Sufi philosophical amalgam. The centrality and significance of the idea of the self to the conceptualization of Islam slash Islamic will be taken up more in more detail in chapter 5. Okay, so we'll look at that, but the idea again being in, in oneness right. with everything around you. So, yeah. so when, when through the Ibadah you know, perspective, mm -hmm. if you orient your entire life as a worship, does that translate to you being one with the cosmos in the other perspective? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, um, the cosmos is already in complete obedience to Allah. Huh, okay. And so, what are you effectively doing? You're getting rid of your own self. Okay. So a lot of times in contemporary language, people will say it's removal of your ego or your pride, but you're basically removing yourself and becoming someone who cannot not obey Allah. Okay. Right, so you're not disobeying Allah, but you don't have the capacity to do anything but obey Allah. So their like idea of the self is different than than like in my head at least, because in my head the self includes some aspects of like personality and mm -hmm. um like like idiosyncrasies that like make a person themselves. Yeah, that we we probably call personality. Is that independent of self? It's connected to it and influenced by it, right? Meaning as you purify yourself, your personality becomes more upright. But think of it more along the lines of your character. Yeah. Okay. This discourse of self-conceptualization and self-articulation is the poetical and narrative tradition of the literary canon of the Balkans to Bengal complex. A tradition to which the concepts and vocabularies of the above-mentioned Ibn Sina, Sahrawardi, uh, Rumi, Ibn Arabi, Tusi, Hafiz, and of other authors of the canon, such as Saadi, the author of the staple works of Persian literacy and literariness, the Guristan and Bustan, Attar and Jamia, or Jami, yeah. the preeminent translators of the cosmology and sensibility of philosophical religion into Persian verse, Persian verse, and Shabistari, popularizer in his best-selling Gulshani Raz, or Garden of the Secret, of the Madhab of Love and of the philosoph philosophy of paradox and figural meaning. 
were foundational and seminal. Their canonical discourses constituted the paedia, and thus the larger modes of thinking and the communicative idiom of the Muslims of this space and age, and as such constituted an integral element in the hermeneutics of Islam of the Balkans to Bengal complex. Okay, so he rattles off all these names, and these are essentially like the big Sufis of, of history. So uh, these are all good names just to become familiar with as the big, big influential Sufis. Ibn Sina is Avicenna. He is one of the big, big philosophers who has influenced everyone else. We mentioned Suhawardi. He's the one of Ishraq philosophy, um, illumination. Rumi, you've heard of. Ibn Arabi is a giant. Some people consider him to be the biggest of all the Sufis. Dusi, Hafiz, Saadi, all these people. Atar, Jami. And so, so the point is, what did they do? They took these ideas and then translated them okay, into something that people can digest. So Rumi is taking these ideas, and then he writes, he writes or performs or speaks Masnavi, this 50,000 couplet, uh, this 50,000 line poem, where he's going through all these ideas by way of poetry and stories and stuff, right? And that's what all these different people are doing. Um, so how, how receptive would the lay person be um, to these ideas as pre presented by, like, by Rumi, for example? Because... Yeah. Um, Someone who doesn't, who's not like in touch with the divine or anything beyond themselves, really. Mm -hmm. um, how how? I mean, my my question is basically, how effective would that be if they would a poem be if they don't have any experience with the divine to yeah. to bring them to close with the divine? So I mean, it would be just like with the Quran, right? In the sense that there's some people who they recite, um, but that's all it is. It doesn't go anywhere past their tongues. Right. Other people, they might be really bad at reciting, yet uh, they have internalized it quite a bit, right? Mm. And so, so Rumi, so Masnavi is considered by many to be the second most read work in all of Islam, the first being the Quran, mm. right? And so you'd find it commonly um, in coffee shops. So people are just casually just reading through this, right? For some insights about life, okay? So think about... You know, why do people in our society, this is how to read so much fiction. Some of it is a pastime, but some of it is you're getting, you're touching on things related to the human experience. So novels in our era become almost like books of psychology in the sense that it's not just merely uh, entertainment. It's right. you're touching onto something. You know, why does Harry Potter, of all the different fantasy books, succeed versus everyone else? And part of it is marketing, things like that. But part of it is that, that you know, J.K. Rowling tapped into something related to the human experience that people identify with, young and old. Mm -hmm. And that's what those books did. And so in those eras, it was poetry. Right? Okay. In today's era, it would be fiction. So, I guess an equivalent... Um I'm not limiting it to, like, books. Like, you could say yeah. movies and stuff. Yeah. And TV shows also. Yeah. So, like, so if someone made a a TV show about, like, the divine, right? I'm, I'm just thinking, especially even, like, like, say, say it's a, say it's from a Christian perspective, because a lot of people are Christians, you know? Yeah, language um, in the wardrobe. Right, so, how, how would that bring people closer to the divine, as opposed to just being a pastime? Mm -hmm. So, so it becomes part of your, your thought process. It's just part of your conversation. Like, think about the fact that even non-religious desis will say, inshallah, as alaykum, right? That might be the bare minimum, 
but it's still something that they have. And so the, the core of it all would be Ibadah, the five pillars, but then how do you reinforce all that? You'll have institutions, and then you'll make it really part of the culture. So in Desi Islam, you know, and in, in, um, in um, uh, what do you call it, um, you know, Persian Islam, they even developed a whole terminology, Khuda being, you know, the name for Allah, and in Parvardigar, and Namaz being this word for, for Namaz. Mm-hmm. Like when you and I say Namaz, you know, we know exactly what we're talking about, right? right? And so they create a whole, whole culture of it, you know? And so those works would contribute to that, so it's like just in your mind, mm. you know? Yes. Like think about what's in our mind today. We think about the earth, especially today with the eclipse, you know, we think about the earth and floating through space and stuff like that. And so you have Elon Musk who talks about flying to Mars, and, and so that's what's in our minds, right? So now imagine a different culture where it's, you know, this, all these theological concepts are in your mind. Hmm. Okay, let's do a little bit more. Um, the members of the communities educated by and affiliated with these ideas constructed themselves and communicated and represented themselves to each other by the performance of verbal and other acts made meaningful in the shared language of this paedium. These communities of Muslims were characterized by a complex of social behaviors in which, for example, the consumption of wine and of figural images was routine and somehow valued positively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now, now he's shifting this to the overall question about the book, right? Because the book is asking, what is Islam? Right. So he's not telling us, here's how Muslims did things in general. He's saying, here's how Muslims did things, but then here's how they contradicted other Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so you do find, you know, like in modern Pawali, uh, you'll find a lot of discourse about wine. And the majority view is that, okay, that wine is the intoxication with Allah, right? But in some circles, it'll also speak of real wine, as opposed to metaphorical wine. Okay. This fact should and must give us profound pause as to what it is that constitutes the normative in the historical experience of Muslims, after which instructive moment of contemplation we should recognize once and for all that these ideas and behaviors constitute part and parcel of the norms of thought and conduct of Muslims. By norm, I mean that which Muslims, that is the significant body of Muslims who held these ideas and practiced these behaviors, who in the historical example I'm highlighting were quite simply the most powerful and influential social group in Islamic history, namely the educated and cultivated Sunni and Shia elites of the Balkans to Bengal complex and the areas under its shadow in the half millennium 1350 to 1850, valorized at worst as neutral and natural, uh, neutral, as, yeah. Yeah, neutral, and at best as positive, or that which these Muslims regarded at the very least as legitimate and acceptable, and at most as how things should ideally be. Okay, so so this again, like uh, a lot of the things that we read in in this book, you know, we're like, okay, how could Muslims support this? This is haram, and the point he's making is that a lot of these things were done by people that the rest of society respected, okay, which often was the elite class, which is what he's now saying. Because remember, that was my, the point that I kept sticking to when he kept talking about alcohol, um, that, okay, that, I believe, was part of the royalty. I don't think that was part of the masses. But the royalty was, was the, the population that everyone looked to, you know, the way we look at celebrities, right? right? Like, and an easy example of that, which I think we talked about in a previous class, is that 
you know, the president of a Muslim organization, we would have very high uh, expectations of their behavior. But then suppose you have a Muslim comedian who, who uses all kinds of bad language and says all kinds of bad jokes, but the comedian is super highly respected in society, we kind of like let that person have lower standards. Yeah. An example of that is Dave Chappelle, right? You know, we revere Dave Chappelle as this Muslim, but I mean, how much of his humor can you say is Islamically acceptable? Probably a tiny percent of it, you know? So much of it is, is way beyond in terms of the harams, right? But you will find people who are super religious Muslims will revere him, you know? And that's not unlike what we're talking about here. Okay, uh, let's stop right here. And um, so we are on page 80, and the paragraph begins with these ideas and behaviors. All right. Okay. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdika nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.